And I remember I had a K62 AMD with like 256 megabytes of RAM. And this thing was badass. And I was like super excited about it. And I spent some ungodly amount of student loan money on this thing. And I was like, I'm in computer science. This makes sense. Like I justified it. And uh, I took it to this local restaurant called Parasons to meet my buddy, Chad. And I go, dude, check this out. And I'm like, he's going to think this is awesome. And I, and I was with all these other nerdy guys. And I thought I was like the coolest nerd that day. And uh, I walked in like a TV show, like ready for everybody to be like, yeah, that's awesome. And my friend Chad looks at me and goes, I mean, it's cool, but he's like, why don't you have Linux on it? So with me on the show today is Scott McCarty. Scott is a principal product manager for the container subsystem team at Red Hat. And if you're unsure what that means, let's just say he's one of the super awesome guys and gals who make sure that OpenShift on Red Hat works. Did I get that right, Scott? Yeah, that's about right. I deal with the low level components in RHEL that basically enable OpenShift and RHEL as a product. So like Podman and build in Scopio and Cryo and Run C and all like the low level software components. Um, that basically make containers work. Okay, great. Um, so you've actually been involved with containers for a while because I remember we met in a it was Ohio Linux Fest. I think it was 2014 or 15. And at the time you were involved in containers and a fun recollection of that. And actually the reason why I remember you specifically is I had was there with my uh, Fedora laptop. And of course I saw this, you know, gentleman sitting over behind the Red Hat booth and I thought, aha, I'm going to go make a funny, funny, snarky quip comment over there. And I walked over and I said, hey, uh, can you convince Red Hat to do like uh, a Fedora LTS for uh, for long term support? And of course, you saw that I was smiling, and I, I guess you thought that it was a it was a game to you know give me a snarky response back. And you said, "Yeah, actually, we do. Uh, it's called Rel Workstation. You should check it out." <laughs> and so we had a good laugh, and we had a good conversation about that, and we talked about GNOME and a bunch of other different things. And then we met again at Summit in 2019, uh, where we interviewed you for Noah's show about uh, all, all the new cool stuff that's in RHEL 8. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yep, but we're not here to talk about RHEL. What we're here to talk about is something that's just as interesting, and that's the people behind RHEL, and specifically in this case, you. So to start off, let's let's go to the first question people love to know is, do you remember the first computer you ever used? Yes. Um, well, yeah, we'll define it as used. I remember being at Kmart, if anyone still remembers that, when I was like, I don't know, six or seven years old. And looking at all these computers that were lined up in the back by the bicycles, I think they were back there back then, there would be like a lineup of computers. And I, you would type something on them and it would just say syntax error. And I was like, what does syntax mean? Like, I didn't even <laughs> know what that word meant, you know? And I was like, what is this? And I would just type, you know, as a kid, you're very stubborn. So you just type as many things as you could possibly type. And eventually mm -hmm. you would type something like LS or PS or whatever. I mean, it's DOS. So I don't even remember what, you know, maybe it was DIR or something you you would randomly type something and something else would happen. You'd be like, oh, there's other things that this can do. Like, <laughs> but I had no idea at all, whatever, you know, whatsoever, uh, what the heck a computer. I mean, I, I didn't even know what computers did, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, they said syntax error. That's yeah, they, they said did. syntax error. I, I thought they were like HAL 9000 and they were very angry. So when you were younger, do you remember when you really thought like the technology computers, that's something that I would, I would really like to get into. And I would like to learn more about not necessarily that you had decided that's what you wanted to do as a career field. But do you remember kind of what was the first thing that really sparked your interest to wanting to dig into computers and technology? So for me, I, I grew up pretty poor for lack of a, a better way to describe it. I know some people don't like using that word, but 
um, we didn't have access to computers really. So like, and we didn't really have even all that on the radar to be honest until maybe like 10 years old. Um, I mean, that's like completely true. I did have a babysitter where, where video games, those were hot. And so like, you'd be like, Oh, I, you kind of, I mean, I of course knew what video games were, although we didn't really have anything other than maybe like some small toys that were not even full general purpose computers. They were just like mm-hmm. specifically like we had Frogger. I remember that you could get that at like Goodwill and you'd get like a Frogger game. And we, we played the living daylights out of that thing. And same with Donkey Kong. I remember we had those two. So you had a little, attra- I, or at least I had a little attraction because of games. And then I do remember my babysitter's house. He had a TI something or other, the, the husband of my babysitter and, and we would play on that a little bit. And I would just type in these long monstrosities of code, having no idea what it meant. And then I never mm-hmm. got it to work. Like I'd hit load or whatever, and it would just never do what it was, you know, wouldn't even compile basically or whatever. Um, but so I wouldn't say that definitely did not give me the taste of like, oh, this is what I'm going to do when I'm older. Like I had no idea. Um, even at 10, I had a, we did move from a very poor neighborhood to a, it was a very strange area where I went from probably like the bottom 10% to probably the top 10% because we lived on the border of this area. And, uh, I did end up going to a grade school named Silver Lake, which is like one of the probably more wealthy ones in Northeast Ohio. Um, and mm-hmm. they did have computers and we did like, I do remember doing peaks and pokes on like apples and like drawing dots on the screen. And like, again, kind of video game driven. I was like, Oh, how do you make the screen draw things? Um, right. But, but even then I had a little interest in it. Like it was interesting, but I didn't have any clue that it would be connected to a job. Like that just didn't even, that didn't even register mm-hmm. for me. It probably wasn't until high school, which I always joke, like, you know, people in Northeast Ohio, they say things like they go, they go pewter job. That's a good job. Like you should get yourself a pewter job. Um, like that was kind of how it happened for me. It was kind of like I was 18, 19 and I thought I was going to be famous in punk bands. And then I started to realize like, I've been doing this since I was 16 and I doesn't seem like we're that far ahead. We did have pretty big local shows and stuff, but it was just, you're not mm-hmm. getting signed for a label in you know Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and I was like, I should probably have a fallback plan. I was like, my dad said a pewter job's pretty good. I should do that. <laughs> like it was very um, mechanical for me. It was not passion driven okay. at all. Um, yeah, it was bizarre. I probably have, I, 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 when we did the command line heroes uh, podcast for red hat, like mm-hmm. everybody, like a bunch of people, probably 50 people did their backgrounds and, I'm the only one I, that I saw that didn't have like some kind of inspiration as a kid. And mine was all mechanical. It's just like the dull compulsion of the economic. <laughs> but then I mm-hmm. did find a passion for it later, but it was probably in my mid twenties by the time I really had a real passion for it. Okay. So let's, let's dig into that. What was it then in your twenties that really sparked that passion and kind of made you go, Oh, okay. I actually really like this. Yeah. So, so I kind of entered into college thinking, get yourself a pewter job. And then that I was like, okay, I guess computer science is what you do. So I started in computer science and then they were like, you need a C compiler. And I'm like, I can't afford a C compiler. And so I, I looked around and I found this thing called DJ uh, PP, which was DJ mm-hmm. Delory had ported GCC or G, G, you know, a C++ basically GPP to, to windows. And I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. So I downloaded and installed that started compiling code, doing homework for, you know, basically for computer science, like intro to computer science, DSA one, data structures and algorithms one, those kind of things. And I had no idea what I was doing, right? Like I just found this thing. The internet was pretty new at the time. This is like 97, 98, 99, that kind of time range. Okay. And then I, I decided finally to, um, well, I didn't decide. I used a student loan to buy a laptop and I had been like, 
back then you would look at a laptop for like um like three four months you'd go to the store min max look at all the different mm-hmm. you know this one has this much ram this cpu and i remember i had a k62 amd with like 256 megabytes of ram and this thing was badass and i was like super excited about it and i spent some ungodly amount of student loan money on this thing and i was like i'm in computer science this makes sense like i justified it right and uh i took it to this local restaurant called parasons to meet my buddy chad and I go, dude, check this out. And I'm like, he's going to think this is awesome. And I and I was with all these other nerdy guys. And I thought I was like the coolest nerd that day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked in like a TV show, like ready for everybody to be like, yeah, that's awesome. And my friend Chad looks at me and goes, I mean, it's cool. But he's like, why don't you have Linux on it? And I was like, I was like, what What was that word you said? Linux? Line, Linux? What was that word? Say mm-hmm. that again. He goes, Linux. And I go, I go, what is this? And I was like infuriated <laughs> at like rage level 10 that I had never even heard of this thing. Like I had never even mm-hmm. heard of it. And I'm like, how does this guy know something that I don't know anything about? <laughs> and it was like out of fury and rage that I like then talked to him every day on the phone for like the next four months. My buddy and I went to Best Buy, downloaded Red Hat Linux 5.2, which I still have the, the book and the CD and, uh, mm-hmm. and literally called him. I would disconnect from the internet, you know, reboot out of Windows, boot into Linux, something wouldn't work right, reboot back into Windows, connect to the internet. And this back and yep. forth. Then I do that three, four times and get super mad and then call my friend Chad and be like, dude, why does this? I'm not and be like, oh, dude, you just got to change the X config. You got to do this. I'm like, what does that even mean? He's like, just don't. It's too much. <laughs> and then I'd be reading man pages and it was chaos. And essentially like a couple years of that. And it just, I don't know how it was out of like almost maybe masochism that I got into technology. It was just like, I just didn't stop. And then eventually some mm-hmm. point you're like, oh, I like this. This is pretty cool. So you you first discovered Linux and then from that discovered open source. Am I am I understanding that right? Well, technically I discovered DJPP first. Okay, that's right. But I didn't fully com- I comprehended it to an extent. Like I knew what it was a little bit from that and I was like, "Oh, and I looked up G- you know, GNU and I kind of understood some of that, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand. I mean, it was all very new to me. Like, at, you know, cuz I was right. it was probably 98ish, you know. And uh, there was other people that knew this way better than me. So I didn't quite I hadn't even heard the word Linux yet, but I kind of knew that that was free code, you know, that you could use. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, yeah, then once I discovered Linux, then I truly discovered what like open source really, really meant, you know, and then I kind of, since it was, it got huge right around that, like right after that, probably. Yeah. Um, and then I basically kind of tagged along the whole time after that. Yeah. It's always interesting seeing which direction people come from, because some people discover open source first. And then from that, they find out about Linux. I'm actually a, a case of the inverse. I was given a system with Linux on it and I didn't know anything about the open source stuff. It was just, oh, this is a different operating system and, you know, reading man pages to learn stuff. And then Later, somebody was was talking to me years and years later about about this open source thing, and they actually referred to Linux. And I'm like, no, 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 I have Linux. That's not open source. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, it is, dude. And I'm like, what are you talking about? No, it's, it's it's just Linux. And they're like, that that is open source. That's funny. So yeah, I felt like a real idiot once I figured that out. Like, oh, I've been using this OS for several years now and didn't even have a clue. Wow. So. <laughs> Did you like download new versions and other things and like know that they were out there? So I had downloaded the ISOs and yeah. just used it like that um i didn't the one that i was given i didn't install it was installed for me so for like a long time i was hesitant to actually go in and try to install something else because well i don't know how the guy did it the first time i didn't want to break what i had that was working yeah and then later i was able to get my hands on another hard drive and then okay let me plug this one in now let me try to install and then after about 15 failed installs i finally got one going again yeah yeah, I think that's kind of what my experience with DJ GPP was. It was like, I kind of knew it was free, but I didn't really understand that it was open source. Like, yeah, it was kind of like I had this half-hearted understanding until I used Linux. Mm-hmm. 
So would you say that that point where, you know, the your friend was giving you all the information about, would you call that your your kind of aha moment where you finally got it? Or would you say that it was later when you f like it finally sunk in what open source actually meant and all the possibilities that it opened up? Yeah, it was probably a little bit after that, like probably like within six months or a year after using it. Like at first it was purely a technical challenge and I was just annoyed that I didn't know what this thing was. And so then mm -hmm. I started reading about it and then the, if you will, political, ethical, philosophical implications sunk in for me. And to me, that had a much more resonant effect than on my friend Chad, who like, I grew up very poor. So I went, I immediately connected. I'm like, oh, this could change kids' life. Like this would have mm -hmm. changed my life. And it was in conjunction with the internet taking off. So I saw, I was very optimistic at that age. I was 21, 22. And I was like, oh, this is like, I immediately connected the dots of, you know, I don't think Wikipedia quite existed yet, but like, um, maybe it did. I don't know what year that started, but, but it was all around the same time that they all kind of came together. And I went, oh, the internet will spread information. Linux can spread mm -hmm. the ability to like participate in technology. Clearly the world's moving towards technology. At least again, I knew at least the redneck blue collar understanding of pewter jobs, pretty good job, you know? And like, right. I was like, oh, I could see how this could change poor kids' lives. That's like the immediate implication that I had in my mind. And so I kind of connected those dots probably a little differently than my buddy, Chad. Yeah. So that then brings me to the next question, which I think is going to strike a little bit closer to home for you. And that's, you know, normally I ask people, you know, can you think of an example where you've seen open source change someone's life in a positive way? But I think for you, you would say that you are that example. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I would say it happened to me later in life, but I, I definitely, it, it changed every. I would a hundred percent chance not be where I'm at right now if this hadn't all happened. I mean, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think the Microsoft world would have done this. I don't think the SunOS world at the time would have done this. You know, like those were such proprietary ecosystems of kind of pay to play and get involved that like I just can't imagine that I would have went down the path enough with enough emotional connection to care, you know, to do mm -hmm. it. And I yeah, and I've seen it with one laptop per child and all these other things. Like I started to see the effects it was having around the world. And yeah, I mean, that made me immensely and profoundly happy to see the world change, you know, in that way. Mm -hmm. So how important do you think it is just generally across the board for, we'll talk as, you know, as us as Americans for open source and early exposure to those things to be just a general component of primary education? That's an interesting question i have never thought super deeply about it in that context um like as americans i'd always thought about it more as access to technology and engineering and like obviously uh you know like red hat has a couple of programs where they where they like reach out to children and help them mm -hmm. uh you know things like that but i had never thought about it as core curriculum in a school i i mean my initial gut feeling is i think it would be a, a very good idea because some of those things that have an impression on you young change, you know, like butterfly effect, like it's such a different butterfly effect if it happens early. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's a reason why I took my daughter skiing uh, yesterday for the first time and she's three and some change. She's like three and three years old in two months. And, uh, you know, I know that will have a profound effect on her and she speaks Spanish. So I speak Spanish with her every day. I can't imagine that um, adding an open source component to it, which I probably will, um, you know, myself, but having it <laughs> as part of the core curriculum, I can't imagine that wouldn't be a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because one of the things that I've I've I read a book by uh, an author Douglas Rushkoff. He wrote I think it was in the early two thousands, maybe early two thousand tens, called "Programmer Be Programmed." And in that, he specifically talks about how there's a generation that's growing up that like when they look at their phone, 
they look at their phone as, oh, this is just a tool that I use and it allows me to do things. But they only conceptualize what they can do on the phone that the phone allows them to do. Whereas those of us that are older that were there in kind of the, the early upbringing of technology, we saw technology as this is a tool I can do whatever I want with, not what it necessarily allows me to do. Yeah. And that it seems that with the younger generations, a lot of them just see, okay, what apps can I install on my phone? And then that's the end of it. And that's the end of the usefulness of that device. And there isn't as much of the ability to think outside the box and, okay, I want to take this and now do something else with it. Hence the title of the book, you know, Programmer Be Programmed. If you don't take ownership of the technology and the tools that you have, you're going to be controlled by them. It's, it's you know, it's one or the other. Yeah. My brain is immediately jumping to, I wonder if that's always been true. Like, I wonder if you go back to the 60s and you look at television and radio back in the 40s. I wonder if it wasn't the same in that, like, unless you were participating in the system, you know, it probably mostly programmed you <laughs> and probably yeah, that, you that, didn't. Yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. But the benefit of open source, of course, is that it democratizes everything and yeah. anyone and everyone has full access. I think I think about kids nowadays with the vast knowledge of the Internet at their disposal to, you know, when they're seven years old, if they want to look up something on advanced chemistry or physics, they could just sit down at a computer type in the thing, and then watch university lectures just like that. It's available to them. And I can't imagine what that would be like to have all that capability available to you. I also can't. I remember when we had played Dungeons and Dragons when we were younger and we would get into these giant arguments about obscure topics because, you know, you're like, would a sword cut through a tree? And you're like, no, dude, blah, blah, you could outrun this. And we, we would do these experiments to see if things would work because we were like so starved for this knowledge, right? But... But mm -hmm. if nowadays you would just like literally, dude, I'm Googling this, you know, like that would be the end of that, right? Like, yeah. I do wonder, you're right, there's there's an interesting thing like uh, having that, it would almost be profoundly sad if you had so much access to so much information and technology, and yet you still let it program you as opposed to participating in it. That would be pretty mm -hmm. profoundly sad, like I think. I think yeah. we almost need to work on that <laughs> as a society. That sounds like yeah, a really that, interesting book, yeah. So... To, to move back to to your your trajectory, you you finished college. Did you go directly into a job doing something with technology or how did? Oh, I'm chuckling because you assume I finished college. Um, I finished college when I was 32. I, well, you uh, finished it. I was, yeah, I was working. <laughs> yeah, my, my background is not typical in any way. That, that was the other thing I learned from doing these podcasts when we did that, that uh, Command Line Heroes podcast and we all did backgrounds. It's like so many people graduated and they're like 21, 22, and I was 32. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I got a job, you know, half, so, so I ran out of money, um, you know, family problems, blah, 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 all that stuff, and uh, essentially kind of had to work full time. So I, I, uh, I was like, I think I know enough to be employed. I worked at the computer lab for like one semester and like helped with the Windows computers, helped with the Linux computers, helped with the Solaris machines kind of vaguely had a half clue what I was doing. And then I put out like not exaggerating like 150 resumes and then okay. got like 11 interviews and ended up getting like, I had 11 interviews in one week. I remember I was driving all over Northeast Ohio and then some of them for, were for like copy repair. And I, ha I responded to this one really strange ad called Need Tech Support Help Brook Park, Ohio. And I was like, all right, all right, whatever, it sounds decent. Let's try this. Mm -hmm. um, it ended up being a job at NASA. And I ended up working <laughs> at NASA for seven years. That is awesome. And, and I did not have my degree. 
and I was going to school the whole time. And yeah, that, that had its own twists and turns. But, um, but I, you know, about, I don't know, seven, eight years into it, I, I was hitting uh, analytical geometry calculus too, which I had been dreading and kind of putting off because I didn't need it as a requirement mm-hmm. for a lot of my classes, but I needed it to graduate. And I talked to my, my boss who she was amazing. She had a doctorate in mechanical engineering and she's like, you know, you don't have to do this. Right. I was like, what do you mean? No, I have to do this. And she's like, you could just do whatever you want. And I was like, no, I know. And I just like had to get mad and, you know, cratchety, like young man. I was like, I have to do computer science. That's what we have to do. You get a computer job. And she's like, you already have a computer job. Like, you know, she was like talking sense to me. And I ended up graduating with a, with a major in anthropology and a minor in computer science. Uh, and I just never finished. <laughs> I never finished analytical geometry calculus too. I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, so my, my background again was very strange. Um, it, it's funny to even, even just the assumption of the question is, is funny. So do you think you're ever going to go back and take that course or are you just never going to do it for your whole life? Oh, that's a good one. I've thought, you know how many times I've dreamed and slept on that and thought about that? I don't know, but I've thought about that over a hundred times. I'll say that. <laughs> I've thought yeah, about that Just take it just so times. you can say, I did it. And that's it. <laughs> there is definitely part of me that just wants to... I've contemplated just going back fish off a major in computer science because it annoys me I don't have it. Uh, but would it have any career impact on this? You know, not at all. Yeah. You know, probably would have zero impact. That probably gets to like some of the other good topics around these things like imposter syndrome and all these things. But yeah, that's a definitely interesting one. Yeah, imposter syndrome is, is an interesting topic to get into. Um, and it seems that by and large, practically everyone in the industry feels it in some way or another. And it's funny when you look at people that are so much more skilled than you and you're like, hold on, you know, practically everything. How on earth do you have imposter syndrome? Like there's a, there's a friend that I know and I can ask him practically any C question that I can come up with off the top of my head and he will be able to answer it without even blinking. He's just like, boom, there's the answer. But yet he he and I had a conversation a couple years ago about it. And like he even feels imposter syndrome. And I'm like, this is it's remarkable. And it's also kind of sad at the same time. It is. I had a I had another conversation with a, a friend of mine a couple a couple months ago, similar to the imposter syndrome, but that our industry is different because the rate of evolution is so rapid that in reality, you're never really going to be able to know everything because the the window of what is applicable right now is moving so fast that in a way, I mean, in a way, the whole imposter syndrome doesn't even make sense because you're never going to be able to know everything because hypothetically, even if you could freeze everything and learn everything about how it is today, two years from now, 30% of that's going to be irrelevant. Yeah. Six years from now, 60% of that's probably going to be irrelevant. So it would be it would be nice if just as a larger community and industry we could kind of get to the point where everybody understands we're all running the same race in the same direction but none of us are actually at the end and the fact that we're running is the key we're keeping up yeah i agree the the interesting thing is is 30% you know like you said 2 years 30% would be useless and there would be 180% more knowledge to know yeah like it's not that it's like the same amount of knowledge in the ladder. It's like the ladder is getting wider at the same time as it's going down the ladder. Um, and so it's absolutely impossible. So I look at it now. This was an interesting thing. My sister, you know, I work on Podman, you know, like my, our team, um, I'm the mm-hmm. product manager in that team. And we, 
we, you know, like my sister goes, oh, do you, you, I said, I found out ubiquity. I'm like, do you know what this is? And she, and she goes, oh yeah, I know what ubiquity is. I'm like, I didn't know. I don't know what you, ubiqu- I didn't even know what it was. Cause one, but one buddy came and said, Hey, you know, Podman's in ubiquity now. And I'm like, what is ubiquity? Like, I don't even know what that is. Like, like <laughs> right. what did, did you say? Linux? What did you say? What is that word? Um, I had that same experience and I'm, I've been doing this for friggin' ever. And I'm like, how is there something yeah. I don't know about? But like, it's impossible. Like literally I would say it's gotten so specialized in so many different areas. Like, and I did some pretty hardcore networking stuff. Like back when I was a sysadmin, I worked at a start for four years. I was deep, deep, deep in that world at that moment, right? Like I knew almost in that world, I knew a huge chunk about it, but it's like Mm -hmm. the principles are still the same, but the technology has completely changed. Like, so you go, everyone feels that feeling. I think the difference is now I don't feel the feeling of being an imposter when that happens. I feel like, the old man syndrome. Like, I feel like I'm like, Oh, I must just be old now. Like, this is what happens to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm on the other side of imposter syndrome, whatever that is. Like it's, it, there's always insecurity of some kind, but it's just like a different kind. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. You mentioned about, you know, finding out about something and then wondering why you didn't know about it for doing Noah's show at least twice a month when I'm doing research for different things for us to talk about. I stumble upon some project and I'm like, this project has been out for five years. I've been looking for this exact thing for like three years. How did, how have I never known about this? If I'd have known about this three years ago, my life could be so much simpler right now. And then two weeks later, sure enough, I find something else and it's like another one. How did I not know that this project existed? Um, It's interesting, but I mean, I guess that's just a reality of one of the benefits of open source is anybody and everybody can work on anything and everything. Yeah. So what we can create as a culture is enormous. And obviously, we're never going to be able to keep our thumb on the pulse of that. No, you can't keep your thumb on the pulse of a, of like 7 billion people, right? Like, one of the things I've learned recently, like, you know, in the last five, six, seven years is, is I now know enough stuff. I don't have like imposter syndrome from that perspective. I have, I now realize that the hardest problem is paying enough attention to the right things and not paying attention to the other things. So like cutting off the ladder at the top and the bottom and knowing this is the ladder and I'm going to go wide enough to know this space really well, but not too wide because I can't make the ladder too long or too wide because if I do, I won't know anything. Um, And realizing how to specialize without losing track of the big picture, like that's a really serious art form over a long period of time. Like if you do that over Mm -hmm. five to 10 years, that's a huge, it's a it's a profoundly difficult thing to do. Like if I were to leave Red Hat and go to some other company now, what would I know? I don't know if what I know is actually even useful. You know, like there's so many different specialization areas that you would be spending a year. I think in the jobs now, in some of these like, you know, more complex jobs, it could easily take a year or two to be up to speed to where you're truly batting mm-hmm. and truly participating in like driving value, creating value like at a level that you are like at your current job. Yeah. Yet someone else will hire you and invest in that just because they're like, oh, this person's talented enough. Mm-hmm. Let me just hire them and waste a year and a half figuring out how to get them up to speed. Like, that's insane, actually. But that's kind of the world we're in. Yeah. And that's why I kind of tell people they shouldn't have imposter syndrome. Even if they're young and they're just graduating from college, it takes even if you hire more senior people, it's going to take a year and a half for them to get up to speed. So, like, it's kind of the same window of not knowing anything. It just happens to be that they expect more out of you at the end of that window if you're more senior, <laughs> but it's still kind of the same. Yeah. And it's, it's another way that our industry is different because if you think about, you know, a mechanic, you know, you, you get your mechanic certification from whatever training course, you know, when you go to work at a shop, they expect you that on day one, you can start changing oil, changing tires, changing spark plugs, changing all this. It's not, okay, let's teach you how to use a wrench. Cause you should know that already. 
Yeah. Um, you come out of nursing school or, you know, you come out of med school. There's yeah, well, with, med, with medicine for specifically for doctors, they have residencies. So they get they get a nice few years of spin up time. But like nurses, you graduate from nursing school and it's OK. Here's your patients. Here's your clipboard. Here's the things you need to do today. Get it done. Our industry is completely different in that regard in that. Yeah. Even if you've been in the industry, you know, stuff. The exact implementation and the way that things work at any particular company or business are going to be different. And with the age and complexity of some code bases, you know, you, you, you join and they're like, OK, well, we want you to start working on this software package. It's it's only, you know, six million lines of code. We need you to change this. Well, hold on. It's going to take time for you to figure out oh, yeah. how does any of this work? What goes together? Because you just don't want to go in there and start turning wrenches because, well, I changed I changed the value in this method and oops, now I just broke everything. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue that like if you're too comfortable, actually companies don't want you like they're paying you for your ability to navigate velocity, not know stuff. Yeah. And that's actually a very different realization. It's not necessarily a different skill. It's the same skill, but understanding that you're going to use it over time forever, basically. Mm -hmm. Whereas doctors, they have to continually continue to learn. Obviously, pharmacists have to learn new drugs and things like that. Yeah. There is a velocity to medicine, and I'm sure it's sped up, but it's not the same level as ours. Like ours, ours is definitely, I mean... Pearl was cool back when I started not, you know, you would, you probably wouldn't get a job. I mean, you, I'm sure you could do it at a job, but you're not going to get a job because you know, Pearl, you know, very rarely, you know, now. And so like, it changes so fast. I mean, it's, you're not even a doctor anymore. It's a new, it's a new word. That's not doctor. It's like some sci-fi yeah. word. Like it just changes. Yeah. I think a lot of what we do these days is just be able to figure out where things like, for instance, if you're working for a company is where is our infrastructure now? Where do we want it to go? Where is the rest of the industry on this answer? Okay, we need to follow that. Mm -hmm. So just being having rote memory isn't as beneficial now as it used to be in the early 2000s when you could just, you know, off the top of your head, speak out long shell strings that you used to be able to use for doing different tasks. Nowadays, it's more important to be able to find the information you need, process it in a way that you can then understand what you task you need to accomplish and then be able to implement that task. So in a way it's, it's an adaptability is more important than just, mm -hmm. I know a bunch of stuff. And also to manage the stress that comes along with that, which is probably another good segue into another piece of this. Like, you know, at the end of the year we did some pieces on opensource.com about how the level of stress in 2020 is, was outrageous, right? Like it was higher than probably mm -hmm. most of my life or than maybe nine 11. Um, except it was like a continuing never ending nine 11. Um, and so you go, how do you manage like, like part of it is like you said, learning, learning the ladder wide enough, knowing that you have a deep enough to know that you can navigate the problems and then not burning yourself out at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, like there's like all these different variables. You have to manage them all because if you don't manage one of them, something bad happens. It's, it's an engineering problem now, just managing your own profession basically. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's hard. I mean, it really is. I don't deny that it's hard. We get paid well in technology, but yet we have to, you have to navigate a lot of, I think, I think the outside the technology world, people perceive us as, ah, oh, these are just tech nerds. And I'm like, dude, I don't think you understand how hard this is. Like, this is not easy. Mm -hmm. Like every job, it doesn't matter if it's entry level or you've been doing it 20 years. It's not easy. Yeah. A friend of mine is a mechanic. He owns his own shop. And a couple of years ago, we were talking about how he was, he was upset because VW has changed some things in how the computer system works and the wiring and all the stuff. And it's like, yeah, when was the last time they actually changed it? Like 
four or five years ago? Like you've been coasting on that for four or five years. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but now I have to relearn it all. And it's like, dude, buddy, yeah. I have to like relearn almost half of what I know every six months because yeah. there's a new better way to do it. And if somebody asks like, you know, how should we accomplish this task? And I spit out the old stuff. They're going to be like, nah, man, there's, there's definitely a better way to do that. Oh, okay. Well now I got to learn the better way. Yeah. And then worse, I hate to break it to him. It's probably going to get faster. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, car, computers are just getting more and more invented. It might in cars not be now. four or five years to the next jump. It might be three to four. The next one might be one to two. You know, like yeah. And then they might just start doing daily updates on the software <laughs> that reprograms. Well, Tesla's already te yeah, Tesla's already doing over the air upgrades for the the software, which and we I mean also, that's great and all, but there's also a danger there's there. There's a danger that, like, there. We kind of already are getting a glimpse at what the downside that might look like. Yeah. Um. Have you seen? You know, bringing it back to physical, but like, you know, even Tesla's struggling because like they'll change body panels or like some piece of the frame halfway through the year. And now you've got like five, six different versions of the car out for the same year and they don't know how to service them. So like they are running into this problem where like they can't even have third party services and they can't grow their service fast enough. So like, yeah, there's some there's some serious downsides to moving too quickly. Yeah, they're counterintuitive. It's called tech debt. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, most of what we do is virtual anyway. So like it bites us in the rear all the time, but it's usually a whole lot easier to just, okay, okay, well, revert everything that I did in the past week and 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 enroll that. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, if you're talking engineering, you know, oh, all those car frames that we just put out last Useless. month. Um, well, uh, I guess call customers and have them bring their car back. Like, no, that's nah. not going to work out very well. Dang it. It turns out the government gets really mad when you do that. <laughs> they do. They do. They do indeed. Um, so bringing it back to open source technologies and how fast things are moving, do you see some things that are being developed right now that aren't necessarily ready for you know daily use, but are, are things that really excite you for what possibilities um, are coming down the pipe that we can look forward to. Now, I know you can't go into anything from, you know, that's confidential information inside Red Hat. I'm not, I'm not asking for that. Um, do you, yeah, I was going to ask if you meant like specifically like within the next year or two, or do you mean like for the next 10 to 20 years? Um, it kind of depends. <laughs> oh, just, just kind of broad strokes of things that you, you see that the direction that we're going, that can be, that are really exciting. Yeah. That, this is another one where I'm not sure I'm excited about the things I see. That's what scares me. Um, okay. If, if well, then what the, concerns you if, if you if that's the way if that's a perspective you take? Yeah, for the first time in my life, I'm not as excited about technology as I used to be. I mean, there's specific tactical pieces of technology I'm excited about. Like I'm excited about Kubernetes and Podman, like and and build mm -hmm. and like the features on our roadmap and how we're we're working on RHEL 9. Like I'm excited about those tactical things. But let's be honest, those are tactical, right? Like those are not strategic changes. Right. Um, the strategic ones scare me. I mean, I see people using you know, classification, AKA machine learning AI and believing that it is really a computer thinking when it's really not. Um, I see a public perception of, of like how, and then on the flip side of that, I see things like Boston dynamics robots and how they're doing backflips and dancing and running and doing stuff. And I'm like, that looks like a Navy seal made out of metal. Like that terrifies me. Um, yeah, I think I've seen a movie about that a yeah, few times I think I've and seen it didn't work out very that. well. Yeah. It didn't really end very well. Um, I think maybe the answer is get to Mars, use a laser, blow up Earth. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. But like, on the flip side, I guess I am kind of excited about the idea of getting to Mars. And it actually sounds real again, which is kind of cool because I did my mm -hmm. seven years at NASA and I did have 
I walked into NASA thinking you were going to, we were all going to watch every shuttle launch. And when a shuttle launch went by and nobody knew about it, I was like, what? Nobody's even paying attention. What? Like I was right. infuriated. Like I was like, how is this even happening? But, um, you know, I guess I've had some pretty dep- depressing moments in my life, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm struggling because, you know, me, myself, I'm very deep in the container world, right? Like I'm super deep in mm-hmm. the Linux and container world. And that has a mileage, you know, like I can probably do this another five, maybe 10 years. I don't know how long this, this rodeo rides, but, um, you know, then what I've got to get excited about something next. And to be honest with you, I haven't found it like AI eh, classification of stuff. I kind of get it. There's some interesting use cases around like, could we analyze food and understand what we're eating? Like, I guess those are kind of exciting. Could we help people with obesity and health problems? I think there's probably something there. I think there is something there with the self-driving, but I think there are some downsides that kind of terrify me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I obviously see the military application of it. That very much terrifies me. Um, you know, yeah. and then I think quantum is kind of interesting, you know, after I suspect quantum in the next 10 years does get kind of real. That is kind of interesting to me. It's something that I fundamentally don't understand very well. It feels like when I yeah. went into computer science at first and I was like, what, how does the assembly work? It does this stack and then it passes very, and then yeah. like understanding the data segment, all this crazy and the way a von Neumann architecture work. Like I know all that stuff now and I know nothing about that with quantum. Like it's a fuzzy crazy thing. So like, that's probably the closest thing that I have that's given me that feeling of like when I was younger, where I'm like, okay, I mm-hmm. need to learn more about quantum. Like maybe I skip the AI thing. <laughs> I need something with it. Maybe I stay closer to the guts of how computers work because that's kind of what I like more. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Maybe I become the, you know, I've always operated better at the sysadmin layer and like dealing with like, dealing with like the complexity of the system and making it simpler mm-hmm. than I was at like, uh, you know, like using classification systems to make driving cars or something, you know, self-driving cars. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the the quantum thing and AI because it's I was I was thinking about this the other night and comparing the two, they seem to in a way be like mirror images. For instance, like we really don't have any clue how AI works, but everybody thinks we know how AI works. But then on the <laughs> quantum side, like the people who understand it are still like, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. We kind of have a good idea. It's a bunch of statistics. <laughs> But at the end of the day, is it going to work? Is it going to be applicable? Eh, we don't know. Whereas, like I said, with AI, the general view from society is, oh, this is just magic stuff that just makes everything better. And then, like, if you find somebody who knows machine learning well and you start to dig in a little bit and you say, so can you reproduce the results that you've gotten? And they're like, well, Well, um, (laughs) you see, the model that we have gives us these results. Right. But if you run everything again and train a new model, are you going to have the same result? We'll we'll know. Yeah. But, but the model we have is really good. It's like, okay, reproducibility is kind of important. Yeah. Can we focus on that for a little? It's like back in the day when we create the dev server and we wouldn't know how the dev server got created. We're like, well, Bob logged in, he did this thing with Java, and then Fred logged in, he did this thing with the other config file. And we're like, do we know it? No, just copy all the config files. Just R sync it. Like it'll work. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, we know it works. works so we're yeah. just gonna roll with it. Yeah, we don't Meanwhile, know you have no idea That's what's exactly how going some of these on. models are. Like you said, like it's that is the config now is the model. You're like, okay, this is the config file. Just save it. We don't know how it got that way. Like this config file has yeah. been mangled over 20 years. We're not sure what will work. We will never start from scratch again. Mm-hmm. Well, with the problem with, with AI, of course, is like with a config file, you can actually go in and look at the config file and take a couple days to you cannot parse do that through it line by line. With an AI model, it's like, oh, look at all these weights and, and values. G- great. What does this mean? How does any of this actually <laughs> relate and do anything? Who knows? If I just change this one little thing, what's going to happen? Don't know. Yeah, um, and it's like you don't want to go in and muck with it because you almost need 
you know, you need the, the weighting comes from the environment and the classification of things. So like that's, I, as I have a daughter that's three and some change, then I have another daughter that's six months. And I now mm-hmm. I'm understanding how I works, not AI, but just I, and like, you know, yeah. and you're like, Oh, okay. So this is how I develops. I kind of see how this works. Like, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine and I have started a noodle on my best friend. He's a pretty sharp dude. And he was like, I'm not confident that classification systems ever become like humans because they need to suffer at the same level that we do. And unless they're con- connected to millions of neurons that essentially suffer all day, every day for an entire lifetime, they won't become like us. It can't become like us. Yeah. And as I've watched my daughters grow up, like like just birth in and of itself is so painful and crazy. You think about the mm-hmm. millions of neurons that are getting stimulated there and it's like saving something in the model, right? And you're like, I don't know yeah. what effect that has on the model. I don't know. Yeah. You know and, like, those, and those neurons have no idea what's going on because they've been in a nice, warm, comfy, protective yeah. environment. And all of a sudden, everything is going it's off. It's all on. <laughs> Lights, sound, action, go, you know. And then, and then as they grow, they start to learn language. You start to see it. They suffer. They fall. My daughter the other day knocked over my other daughter. She was in the bouncer. Like, and, mm-hmm. and I heard this, gush, 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 and I'm like, what is happening? And then I hear, I'm like, oh, that's not good. I start to run upstairs and I hear mommy, mommy. And I hear, Bleh! and I'm like, our three-year-old had knocked our six-month-old out of the, the bouncer was like, it looked like a car crash. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so this is part of growing up. Like, I didn't know if her neck was broken, her head, if she banged her head. Like, I didn't know anything. She stopped crying fairly quickly within about, it's a kind of amazing, again, classification systems, right? My eye was like, within 10 to 15 seconds, I was like, eh, I'm 40% sure she's okay. Within 25 seconds, I was like, I'm 70% sure she's okay. Right. Within 30 seconds, I was like, I'm 95% sure she's okay. Like, I was using classification of a whole bunch of data just to kind of analyze what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I realized even analyzing myself and how I perceived that situation that, like, we are basically just classification systems in certain ways. Um, but, but it takes so much struggle and pain and agony and neurons. We got to send a signal and then see it fail and then the pain from it failing, like, Literally, like, I went to go here and then my finger got broken or I fell snowboarding and broke my arm. Like, you know, like all of these things are what train the model, you know, if you will. And so, like, mm-hmm. if that that's never going to happen to an AI, like, 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 unless we literally connect it into a flesh and blood body and let it suffer like crazy. I don't know that they ever become us, you know, I don't know. This is my rant on on AI. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, is like you think about it when you grow up, when you do, you know, trip and fall down. That's how your brain learns. Okay, I need to rewire this. I need to relearn the way I was doing these feet in front of each other. Yep. And that's the impetus and then the stimulus to then relink all the neurons to, okay, we got to find a better way to do that. How on earth are we supposed to have a, an allegory for that with machine learning? That if an algorithm is slightly off, it hurts. Like, yeah, we can try, re- we can try retraining, but it's only going to be effective to a certain amount. And you're not going to be able to retrain one small specific area and then not affect everything else because obviously the way the models work, everything is linked together with the way they calculate data. Yeah. So I'm, I have mixed emotions about AI. Yeah. I'm just like, I don't know. I think everyone does. I think my greatest concern is just the fact that there, there seems to be an unwillingness to admit that we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) Like we've got some great results and that's fantastic. But why do we have those great results? Like let's figure this out first before we just start pushing this into everything because we may be getting results yeah cool but there may be ancillary effects we're not aware of right now because we just don't have the experience 
and maybe pushing this out into every single area of life isn't the best thing to do when it is something we don't understand. Pushing beta software into production. <laughs> in some in some cases, alpha software, just because yeah. I've got to get that new feature out this quarter because we're up for an evaluation for stock price and we've got to push this. So I am excited about, I mean, obviously this is pretty timely, but like I, I took a bioinformatics class and I did study a lot of biology because my, my anthropology background, I ended up doing a lot of, a lot of biology. And actually I even was able to count some of the classes for both computer science and anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, Cause American anthropology, I don't know, you probably don't know this, but it's four field anthropology. So it's focused on, Biology, culture, language, and archaeology are the four main, the four fields of anthropology. It's called four-field anthropology in the United States. Okay. Um, uh, and so I studied mostly biology and, and language, um, which helped because those are kind of computer science topics. So I was able to kind of do a lot of bleed over. Mm -hmm. But yeah, long story short is I'm excited about like protein folding and the way AI and or quantum could affect that. I am excited about that, like solving mm -hmm. cancer, solving diseases you know, repairing body parts, growing limbs, all of these things will be assisted by these two technologies. And as long as we keep yeah. them in scope, I'm okay. It's when we start mm -hmm. getting into like general purpose and military applications, like that's where I start getting pretty nervous. You yeah. Know. Yeah. AlphaFold is incredible. Um, there was a, a biologist who I saw a podcast on um, and they were talking about AlphaFold and about how amazing it was. But they said, the thing is, is like, yes, we can throw the data in and it will generate what how things are going to fold and that's fantastic we have an answer sort of we have an yeah. answer of what does this fold into what we don't have is the answer of why does that work and then how can we apply that knowledge to every other situation yeah like the there there's potentially an answer lying in how the ai model is actually working but we haven't been able to figure out a how that is and then b are we just getting valid results by chance because of some other, you know, natural phenomenon that we're not aware of that the model just real evolved to realize, Oh, well, this is, you know, what's going on in the background. So, you know, it, it, we, it would be really nice if we had a greater understanding of what exactly is going on inside these models that leads them to the results that we get. Because I think most of us, especially in the open source world would say, the results are great, but knowing how you get those results and having open transparency that whole way is just as important. Yeah, I agree. Like I can use an operating system that will allow me to get online and connect and, you know, send emails and stuff like that. But it's better when I can do that with an operating system I have full visibility into and can understand what's going on. I do wonder how much of it is us relying on, like, I see this even in our team, like, there's so much technical knowledge that it requires to fully understand something from the top to the bottom that almost no single human, even the people writing the software, even even like, for example, Podman, we know obviously how to start a container, how to communicate with a Linux kernel, how run C works. We know how all this stuff works, but but even our own people, like even me, even other people on the team, like we'll know certain pieces of it, but not other pieces. And we're just relying that somebody else knows it on the team. We're like, oh yeah, Giuseppe mm -hmm. knows this, blah, blah, that's fine. Like, I don't know how this thing works, but like, like it's not that we necessarily know it. It's someone that we trust knows how it works. And as long as yeah. that, then we're okay. But you're right. When when you get to the end of that trust chain and then nobody understands and you're like, oh, wait a minute, nobody understood this? <laughs> like, yeah, that's the not The guy good. Who, who made this doesn't understand? <laughs> hold, hold on a second. That's not good. I have, some, I have some additional questions. Yeah, that's not good. I don't know what... Is that... A, that might be a different problem than open source, though. That's the interesting thing there. That's a fundamental problem that might be much worse than open source. 
there may not be a way to uncork that with, you know, that's yeah, just on another uh, podcast that I do. Uh, my co-host and I, we actually had a discussion about uh, algorithms and specifically on the, on the AI machine learning side of, you know, how important is it for these things to be open so that people can actually have an understanding of what's going on? Because effectively you have people at different companies that are doing this work and they kind of have a good handle on things, but of course they just all rotate around between different companies yeah. and the rest of us are in the dark. Yeah. And when you, when you look at how, you know, just let's take Amazon for example, um, their simple recommendation engine. I mean, at face value, it's just, Oh, well people that, liked this thing this movie also liked this movie so maybe, maybe i'll go check that movie out and it seems all innocent but yet when applied to a larger scale it's really easy for somebody who's controlling those knobs to be able to surreptitiously lean things one way or the other and perhaps not even intentionally just accidentally something else got a little more emphasis that wasn't meant to and then the results end up getting skewed. So then everybody who's looking for movies sees, oh, everybody that liked this movie also liked that movie. Let me go check out that movie when there was actually a better movie we should have been recommended. Yeah, there's, there's, um, I'm unsure if that's the right inference or not. And I'll not, I, I won't say it isn't the right one. I don't know. But mm -hmm. I've listened to like, I can't remember his name, but the chief scientist at Amazon who's been there since back in the day, like, you know, mid nineties or whatever. Mm -hmm. He talked about how, you know, we realized people were very predictable, very predictable and able to control are two very different things. Um, you know, predictable is if I see them do this, they're going to do this other thing. That doesn't mean I can make them do, mm -hmm. you know, if I see A, they'll do B. It doesn't mean I can influence them to do C. And even if I do try to influence them to do C, maybe it'll fail to do B and then I won't make any money or whatever. Like I'm not a hundred percent sure that we've learned how to, I'm not sure that recommendation engines or anything else, even Facebook, any of these things actually uh, tell people what to do, if you will. Um, I think that there's obviously some element of that. It would be implausible to say that there's not some, some of that happening, yeah. but, but I think the vast majority of the energy for like an Amazon has been trying to like, see if they do a, and they want B, I try to give them B like I'm really actually mm -hmm. trying to give them what they want because that's the most likely chance that they'll buy something, right? Like if I actually mm -hmm. give them what they want um, and then there's obviously a whole gradient there. It's not, it's not black and white. Um, right. I do. I do fear here. Here's the one here. My, my dystopian fear of the future yeah, go for it. is um, it's not well Bezos and Zuckerberg and Dorsey are in charge that I'm scared. It's 50 mm -hmm. years from now when there's soulless executives in charge. And the CIA comes banging on their door and they go, we've been doing this work on this data. Pretty sure we can make B, we can make C happen. We just need to yeah. use your stuff. And what's the percentage chance that these big companies stop it? Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's when it gets weird. Like it gets really weird when it's like proactively trying to control how customers do something that isn't in their best interest. Right. Like, like mm -hmm. at least I, I genuinely believe in my heart of hearts that Amazon up to this point and a lot of the other big ones have mostly just tried to give you what you want. Mm -hmm. Like 99.9%. .9%, they're just giving you what you want. If they find something that's like, a, actually the people that are not doing that are the people that advertise on their platform. So you'll see right. these crappy wish.com style. Not that I want to insult wish.com, but like these wish.com style things that you get advertised on Facebook. Those people do not have your best interest. They're trying to hack the human psyche. Mm -hmm. We know they are. Same with politics. But the actual people running the platforms, I still generally believe they are mostly just trying to figure out how to provide you what you actually want. Um, you know, something that's actually genuinely interesting to you. But I do see it going more and more across the line. 
Like, I mean, that's yeah. inevitable, right? Like, I mean, right. Well, yeah, humans are involved. So yeah, it's inevitably going to go sideways. But then that's, that's the question. Is it the human or the technology? I suspect it's the same thing as it's ever been. It's propaganda. It's manipulation. It's blah, blah, blah. It's just a higher form of it. It's using a tool to do it, but it's the same. It's the human at the end of the day. Yeah. The, the term I always like to use is a military term and it's force multiplier. Yep. Technology just takes the, the human element and exacerbates it and expands out what it, what it, the impact of that. Um, because I agree with you. Generally, I think, you know, the people that are working on these things, they're, they're working a day job. They're not, you know, evil supervillains, but like there's been, I mean, I think it was in 2014. I'll have to dig up the, the link in the show notes where Facebook actually did a study on a few thousand people and actually found that by just selectively manipulating what other friends, uh, information they sent to them, they could actually have an impact on that person's emotions. Yeah. And like they put it out and like, thankfully, they were actually open and honest about it. And they're like, oh, wow, we found this. So everybody should be aware of this, which I applaud them for not just going, oh, ha ha ha. Let's twirl our mustaches and, and, and get to work. But I often wonder if just by human error with no malice intent, if we could end up in a situation where just over time, and exposure, things start to happen. I mean, I look at... I suspect uh, with, Thucydides' with animals, trap. You know, it's the Thucydides' trap. You absolutely yeah. can. I mean, we kind of know it since the time of the, the Greeks. Yeah, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at just riding a horse, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse before, but it does not take much effort to change the direction of a horse. Usually, all it takes is just the feeling of the reins on their neck, and the horse knows, okay, I need to go that way. And the longer that it feels that, the more it's going to turn. Because it's just over time, it's learned that that small impact is actually what it needs. That's the signal to, okay, do a thing. Even though the horse is massively stronger than us and could totally trample us and beat us up, it's learned that just that tiny insignificant weight that it will feel on its neck is the signal to, okay, I got to go do this. Yeah, I think that the Thucydides trap is a pretty good representation of like where we end up doing things we don't want to do. So like, the example that's more recent past is World War One, where the king of uh, the king of the you know whatever the the Habsburg Empire or whatever he was in England mm -hmm. and he said no I'll never we I couldn't imagine us going to war like I love I love England and the UK more than any other country other than my own country you know like and he mm -hmm. was actually related they were related which a lot of people don't realize and yet they still ended up in an arms race and then going to war like it was like unfathomable to everyone involved that they would go to war, but they did go to war. The same thing happened with the, the original Thucydides trap, I believe was the Peloponnesian war between Sparta and Athens. And it was because mm -hmm. it was Sparta and Athens knew they couldn't go to war because it would be risk and they would destroy themselves. And right. But they ended up getting dragged into it by some of the, the outer provinces that were like, you know, or the other state city states that were like kind of going to war. And then Sparta said, well, we got to back them up because we said we would, it was like NATO over here. And you know, the, the mm -hmm. block and, and the next thing you know, it's like now, now Athens and them are involved, even though, again, it was unfathomable. And then they both got taken over by, you know, Greece got overrun by the, uh, uh, the, the, mm -hmm. uh, what the heck was another name of the empire. But anyway, you get the, the point, like the dominoes fell and nobody involved wanted this to happen. Like, um, you yeah, know, well, we might like be in the said, middle of that again with our currency and yeah. reserve currency and things like that. But, um, yeah, I think, I think now when you have people being influenced by social media and then some of these algorithms to then strengthen the signals that, like you said, force multiply, the signals that mm -hmm. these people are saying, I think the Thucydides trap is, is uh, terrifyingly easy to get into. Yeah. Yeah. And like you, like you referenced with world war one, I, I mean, that was just a chain of dominoes that, you know, one day one person gets assassinated and then it just 
in sequence, bam, 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 bam. A whole bam. bunch and of next thing you know, the entire European continent is now in, in conflict. And yeah, had somebody the day before said, oh, we're all going to be at war with each other in a week, people would have been like, you're crazy. Yeah. How did it ever happen? Yeah, and that's yeah. that's actually my biggest... And, and the piece I can't figure out, to be honest with you, even as a person that's been in technology forever, is I'm not sure if technology actually plays a role. Like, like I mean, I know it does. I've always had this theory that technology is the only thing in the world that makes the world better. Like, uh, politicians don't. I've come to that conclusion. Like, <laughs> like um, if you look at history of humanity, like, so I try to always go back and do, I call it the 300,000 year test. Mm -hmm. And I call it the 50,000 year test. Like, like think through your day and then realize like, I'm warm right now. Like, that's not something that like my ancestors experienced 300,000 years ago. Like it was all mud and blood and, diseases and germs and like, and mm -hmm. you know, horrible hunger and horrible cold. And you go, you go, what's, I mean, has like technology is the only thing that's made the world better. Like politicians back then didn't like, if we went to war with this tribe next to us, did my life get any better? No, it didn't get any better. Like, like it was all horrible. Right. And then slowly but surely the 4% per year, you know, they jokingly call it the 4% productivity gain nowadays because it's a lot more stable we can actually see it mm -hmm. um you know back for the first three hundred thousand years that four percent didn't do anything like it took us like fifty thousand years to get from the stone age to the copper age you know like i mean it was like yeah ridiculous amounts of time in between any major technological advantage in fact they could all be counted you they were clearly in the fossil record you know again things we learned in anthropology mm -hmm. and now we can measure it it's so much it's happening so much faster that we can actually measure it as productivity and we know it's about four percent and it's basically all from technology, you know, like nothing, like, yeah. you know, the politicians and the finance people have some influence over when, you know, like big ebbs and flows, but it's not, it's the work of the engineers that change the world. But then I ask, like, it surely makes our life better. Like I'm less cold, less hungry. Mm -hmm. My, you know, my girlfriend had an epidural when we had the baby, you know, like, like, like 50,000 years ago, no epidural. Like that was just really bad. Like, um, yeah. And you ask yourself, like definitely technology made it better. But it, did it change our behaviors? Like, are we too comfortable? Are we not? Is it the same? You know, it's most likely it's the same, even though we perceive it to be different. Um, but I don't mm -hmm. know. That's my that's my two cents. Yeah, I've heard some psychologists say that they have, you know, it's kind of like a theory in the back of their head that they roll around every once in a while that maybe things seem to get be getting crazier and crazier because we almost have a genetic memory of how crazy things used to be. And they've been too comfortable for too long and it's like deep in our in our you know wetware operating system, our brain's going something's wrong here. Something's Something not needs right. to be wrong. Some things are too good. What's going on? I think I feel that. I think I feel yeah. that. So to bring this back, since we've just talked about you know the the benefits of tech and and where it's brought us out of the mud. Looking back on your life and career, if you were able to sit down with yourself when you were in high school. What kind of advice would you give to yourself about open source, about technology, about Linux, about whatever? That is a really good question. Like I've thought that one too, like the other one a hundred times I've thought over, like, what would I say to myself? Um, you know, it's, it's, it starts with the human element. I mean, it really does. And I'm not just being cliched because of the theme of your podcast, but, but it really is the human element piece. That's the most important. It's not what you learn. It's like why you go do it and like how you find that passion. Like I've seen my buddy, my one buddy, I'm still friends with a bunch of people, you know, across the the economic, you know, spectrum. Um, and, you know, cause I grew up and went to schools that weren't that great and I'm still friends with a lot of them. 
there's people I've seen that just were not able to get out of it. They just weren't able to mm -hmm. break the cycle and they want to, like they want to really badly. But, but I see my one friend in particular, he's gotten into tech a little bit and he's kind of floundered around. It's taken him way too long to kind of move to the next thing and everything. And I see it. He just doesn't quite, he hasn't figured out how to dig deep enough in one thing okay. to like truly get good enough to where, um, you know, you're useful to the economy, you know, and that's the weird, that's the cold, you know, I, I think Karl Marx said the dull compulsion of the economic, like it's such a uh, profound statement. Um, and this was him as an economist, not as a communist. Um, but like, there is something true to that. Like the, I would probably, to my 17 year old self, I would tell them about the, I, I was probably 24 or 25 when I read Karl Marx's wage, labor and capital. This is a, I believe that's a very pre-communist uh, book, mm -hmm. but it was just an economics book about how you could tell there was hints of what he was thinking, you know, in the future, what he would, what he would eventually come to. But, but at the time it was more about, um, you know, how it, it was about if labor becomes a commodity, obviously labor will be abused. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's even in wealth of nations, Adam Smith. Right. What I would teach my old self is differentiate yourself in the economy as quickly as you can. And the best way to do that is to find something that you are passionate about and go down the rat hole as deep as you can humanly go. And don't feel guilty about it. Just do it. And it better be longer than two weeks. Like it better be like <laughs> a year, two years, three years, four years, like a ridiculous amount of time that like you got to find something that you're so passionate about that it will take you down the rat hole so deep that you will know more than anybody else in the world mm -hmm. at that time about that thing. And it doesn't matter what it is. Like, like I've seen YouTube channels where they're about ridiculous things that like, I was like, I never thought that would be interesting. That one guy that built that like squirrel thing in the, in his backyard. And now that guy's like got all these maker videos and stuff. This guy literally just did that off making stupid videos. Like, about glitter bombs and you know package thieves and like like mm -hmm. you realize he literally knows more than anyone else in the world about those things now and they're like ridiculous things that don't even make any sense but yet he's able to make a really good living off of it um yep if you look at my life and my career that's essentially what i did i just went down the rat hole i just happened to enjoy linux went down that rat hole went down till i till i was in one of the few people that know all the things i know you know and now i'm in that in the container world i ended up falling down that um but it was out of passion. It was just out of like non-guilty feeling passion for it. I remember I was in, I was at Pi, Pi Ohio probably around circa 2000, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there. And uh, okay. a lady named Catherine Devlin walked into the room at this one, at this one talk we were in. And she goes, everyone, I just want to, maybe she was giving the keynote. I don't remember, but she said, at PyCon, we have a rule, or at Pi Ohio, we have a rule. If you're not interested in a topic, you're not only welcome to get up and get out of the room and walk out, you are compelled to do so. Like you are guilty if you don't do it. Like you should do it. You ought to do it because you're wasting your time and you're wasting everyone's time and you're not really going to be like driving like a passionate discussion about the topic and blah, blah, blah. And that like profoundly affected me. Like I had never put it together so crisply that that's essentially what I did. Like when I reconstruct my career and I, I am been more successful than I would have ever expected to be. Like I've been, I've been to six continents. I've been all over the world. I've, I've been to Europe 25 times. I've traveled ridiculous amounts for Red Hat, talked to customers all over the world. Um, I never would have been, I never would have dreamed that I could do that, but I fell down the rat hole uh, by mistake. And like the thing that I'll teach my daughters, it will be that like, just find that thing that you have so much passion for that you can go down the rat hole so deep you will be differentiated within the economy such that someone else will pay you 
to do that thing. Like, like they'll pay you for access to that information because that's really what it's about. It's about, it's about access to that ability and, and information can be a, a process by which you solve problems as well. It's not just the knowledge, you know, like to your point, um, like my time management system I've been using for 13 years is one I developed myself. It's ridiculously good. I, I don't want to be arrogant, but it's good. It's gotten me where I'm at 13 years. It's worked pretty well. I'm not changing it too much at this point. We're now in refined, but basically right. in a nutshell, my work pays me because I have the system and I'm pretty good at getting things done, you know, but that's mm -hmm. like based on my system, you know, that I share voluntarily, but people, you know, people don't listen very well most of the time. So you, you can't tell people what to do, right? You can only give them the information, right? They do it or they don't. But, uh, I mean, that's what I would probably tell my 17 year old self, you know? And I think that's what I did do innately. Like some people do it innately. And I think that is why they fall into success, but it's not on purpose. That's the, I would, mm -hmm. I, I hope I can convey to some people to do it on purpose. Cause like, really, I hope I want to see more people succeed. Like, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's a genuine, I don't have schadenfreude. <laughs> I want to see them succeed. Yeah. And, and seeing people succeed at something they genuinely care about and enjoy and have a passion for is, is amazing. Yeah, I agree. Well, Scott, I think that is a fantastic note to end this interview on. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and talk. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I've had so much fun doing it. Take care.